Welcome to the Build the Future podcast, where we host conversations that promote positive and exciting visions of the future. Today, we're talking with Aaron Slowdove. Aaron's the founder of the stealth startup Atomic Industries, and they're building the future of manufacturing with the goal of building a more efficient and less wasteful world. Let's jump right in. When it comes to the future, what's storing in your brain right now? Personally, I'm I'm really interested to see where policy goes in the future. And I think that there have been a lot of interesting illustrations of the need for change in policy. And it's stuff that gets overlooked a lot, right? I mean, like nobody really likes to think about politics and policy in particular. It seems like, you know, for a lot of younger people, that's just not at all what anybody's thinking about, honestly. <laughs> and it's it's weird because it's it's not something where, you know, the future is necessarily like this illustrious vision, right? It's basically active planning for what will happen. And it's really challenging, I think. And it's not at all my domain, but I find it really fascinating. <laughs> I don't know if you I don't know if you pay attention to that stuff at all, but definitely a little bit. Because, I mean, I think there's this Silicon Valley mindset of like, oh, let's go build it and then kind of everyone will get on board. But we also have to realize that we're not necessarily, we're building in a vacuum and the implementation of a lot of these technologies does run into, like come to head with a lot of the stakeholders in Washington or even on the state level when it comes to implementing these things. Like, I don't know, I think like autonomous cars is an interesting example to kind of frame this policy question around because clearly the technology would save lives and would be really cool to be rolled out and have like profound implications. But how do we actually go from demos in San Francisco and Phoenix and I think maybe New York and then like Pittsburgh where these companies have like unmanned or, or, or you know, like pilot or training or co- co-pilots for these uh, AI systems uh, or self-driving systems? Like, how do we go from that to actually like, you know, robo taxi mode where people are able to summon this and like ride independently? That's a really important policy question because that's going to be the blocker. Like the technology is different. People say it's it's closer, farther away. But regardless, we're going to need to roll this out somehow. And how do we get the cities to get excited about this and, and shift their, their legislation around like adopting this stuff? When I worked at Google X working on the self-driving car, you know, we had a massive celebration when Nevada was one of the first states to pass any kind of legislation to allow autonomous vehicles on their roads. And that was, that was really interesting. Right. And that was back in 2011. And without that, there would have been no, you know, public road space to really begin testing. And you're right. I mean, these things kind of do go hand in hand. You can't necessarily build in a vacuum, especially when you're trying to build things that are, you know, trying to improve people's lives and trying to introduce new technology into society. It needs a testing ground, (laughs) especially with the advent of AI, right? Because you need massive training data sets. You need to refine the models that end up influencing decision-making in different systems, right? And so a lot of that requires humans to buy in to implementing these systems. And 
I think that this is going to be a huge, (laughs) I think this is going to be a really huge point of contention down the line. And I know that we think about the intersections of AI and politics and policy and how government is run. And I think that a lot of what really, you know, interesting, famous people, uh, whether they're, you know, Elon or Sam Altman, anybody that has, you know, a strong opinion on the place of AI in society in the future and how much of a quote unquote threat it will be, it's not going to be, you know, necessarily a leap from zero to a hundred. I think because politics and policy are a natural dampener on how quickly those things enter, you know, the public space. And it's going to just be really, really fascinating to watch that unfold because yeah, we, we can we can get into what I believe that point of contention will be and how it can be resolved, but I, I do find that to be incredibly fascinating. And it's something that does excite me a lot about the future. The way I think about the policy thing, it's much more clear to me that we're going to run into kind of some friction for things that are like for physical world innovations. So the, you know, the atoms versus bits thing. But in, I don't quite, I'm not quite connecting the dots on like how AI will kind of fit into this. It seems like AI is mostly a software innovation and the policy is certainly going to lag, right? So it's not, it's not even like a, we have to have policy before this stuff gets implemented. It's going to take on a life of its own. And then people are going to have to try and like fit it in versus a lot of the supersonic jets or autonomous cars or biotech stuff. Like those are all like policy has to happen before they're implemented. And in AI's case, I don't, I don't see it playing out that way. Um, so I'm curious, kind of like in your mind, like what is what is that point of contention? Like how will that play out? So, like most things that happen in society and are driven directly by humans, we're we're pretty bad at being a proactive society on a on a whole. A lot of what we do is reactive, right? Which is very easy to see on the level of basically a natural disaster. <laughs> um, like why did Hurricane Katrina affect people the way it did, right? I mean, like it's surprising in a lot of ways. And if you look at medicine, right? Like medicine is very much a reactive kind of field where if we were more proactive about our health, I think that the entire question of universal healthcare and how we afford things like that would be a lot easier to stomach because, you know, people in general would be more proactive about their health. And you can do that without infringing on people's liberties or freedom, which I think is a very, very sensitive area (laughs) these days. And so it's interesting because what I'm talking about is more the fact that to be a better society, I think it requires changing our mindset and becoming more proactive about everything. And politics is uh, a huge, you know, impedance to how everything happens. And that's a necessary and kind of natural byproduct of it, right? Because it goes through this human filter. And without that, you know, you would argue that we don't actually live in a free society and being a reactive set of decision makers basically is all based on how much we kind of glom on to how much freedom and liberty we're trying to maintain for everybody. I don't know if that makes sense, but like where AI enters into that is the fact that 
no human politician, no matter how experienced, no matter what their <laughs> what their uh, job is, can process and aggregate the data of society to make really accurate decisions. And the natural place for AI to step in is in that kind of a level. And you don't have to necessarily remove humans from decision-making. It's just that an AI is going to be orders of magnitude better at it, right? And how that actually manifests, I'm not sure. I mean, it could be anywhere from urban planning and development to resource allocation, right? To strategic planning. And I think people get nervous about that, obviously. But when you start removing humans from how they actually assess a lot of these situations, right? Like it could be down to a community level. Like where, where do we put our taxes, right? Like, does it go to a sidewalk? Does it go to a road? And people, I don't think honestly, anybody necessarily agrees that their taxes are spent efficiently. I think that's a huge sticking point between the two major political parties and what better way to alleviate that kind of contempt than to introduce a third party who's effectively neutral, but can do a much better job at allocating where our resources go and how they're spent, right? You just kind of need, you need to optimize where those things are going and you need objective functions to do that. And so the analogous way that, you know, we do this now is that we elect a politician that represents us. That politician is supposed to act in our best interests, right? Depending on what level of government they are appointed and they act as an objective function for us. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we put that power into the politician's hands and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we should just be voting on objective functions, right? Jeff Lewis was talking about this a while back from Bedrock. He just had this point. He's like, you know, in the future, people are going to most likely be voting for algorithms instead of necessarily politicians. Like, what sort of algorithm do you want to represent kind of governance in this city? It could be one that optimizes for, you know, quality of life. It could be one that optimizes for growth. And then people will be able to kind of choose which algorithm they want to be governed by. But furthermore, I guess this also taps into the, like the, the ideas of like experimental governance, right? Because we have, yes, we live in a world where theoretically we're electing people to, to represent us. But when you have a, a two, two-party system, that's unfortunately not what happens, right? It's most people would say, oh, I'm choosing the lesser of two evils, regardless of, you know, the, the party. And that's clearly dysfunctional, right? It's like, oh, I don't want, necessarily want this person to represent me, but, you know, they're better than like the other option. It's like, yeah, we probably should figure out a way to kind of move, move past this. And, you know, is, is different states... Now, I don't know, this way I'm, I'm viewing the world is different states can step up. It's very similar to what we're seeing in Miami, uh, in Austin, and I mean, hopefully, I mean, like Wyoming seems to have some stuff going on here where states are saying, oh, you know what, we want to do things a little bit differently. We'll have this type of governance here. We'll, we'll kind of support this and that. And then we get to a point where states are battling it out and competing in the realm of ideas and, and policy, and we actually can get to a point where, you know, we can stress test these things and see what works and what doesn't. And then that kind of is a conduit to eventually get into AI-based policymaking and governance. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have to do this stepwise. Um, 
because a lot of a lot of incumbents, you know, don't want to give up their power. Maybe they don't necessarily think they can be easily replaced. It's going to be challenging. And I think that that's that really big point of contention that I'm talking about, whether it happens within the next, you know, 20 to 50 years or maybe two to 300, depending on how, <laughs> how technology really rolls out. I think if and when, and this is, this is on a very large scale, but I would, I would put money on the fact that there's potentially one more relatively violent kind of global conflict that's based around ripping the power from the incumbent's hands and putting it into the hands of software, basically. And how that transition actually occurs ultimately, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean like flipping the switch on Skynet or whatever. But I think that like you'll see political candidates in the next 10 years who are backed by an AI, right? Like, look, all the decisions I'm making are informed by an AI. Oh, that'll be interesting. That's almost like a hack. Right. It's a, here's here's what, what's actually going on in the world. Here's what everyone seems to want. And then the yeah, their their policies actually being shaped by data on the ground versus this abstract notion of like, oh, here's what we think people want. Especially as we kind of like move through this era of um the, or at least the current era of like the mainstream media institutions into more of this kind of creator economy or creator-centric kind of media, there'll be more more of a need for data or, or like substantive data. Um, driving kind of these policy decisions such that people feel like they're they're actually represented versus you know what they're being told is is what's going on. Yeah, it's it's a much more optimal scenario where people can get that kind of feedback really quickly, right? I mean, like go ask your congressman about where all of your taxes spent, right? Either throw a giant cavernous book at you um, where you can look at a ledger for the past 20 years for your congressional district. And nobody's going to dive into that, right? Like people have definitely become either way, way too overcome with the amount of data that's out there, right? And I think that this is this is another really big thing about on a personal level how how action occurs. And I think that you know I'm talking pretty big on like a societal level. How do you how do you consume all of that data and make really effective decisions with it? But then on the individual level, you have, you know, people who have access to everything at any moment, basically. And I think that that's that's not something that we've been wired for, really. And it's a lot of a lot of it is like anxiety inducing. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's I think like with, within this kind of world, like having access to all this data enables so much more collaboration, so much more communication. Yeah, it has its challenges, but all these things are, I mean, problems or solutions to problems always breed more problems. And are, you know, if you follow the kind of David Deutsch beginning of infinity, every like we'll we'll solve problems, we'll just continue to solve problems at the end of time, then you, you can kind of view this, at least the current social media landscape, if you will, to to be more concrete here, as something that has enabled a ton of like a ton of progress, a ton of communication. I mean, you and I are able to have this conversation as a result of these tools. We're able to find other like-minded people and go build the things we're building, partially as a result of like these ecosystems that exist. But they also obviously create more challenges, but those are things that we can solve for. And everyone wants to kind of talk shit on Twitter and Facebook, but I'm actually 
extremely grateful that we live in a world where these things exist. I don't think people are like understand enough how just how much they've they've made people's lives better and they've enabled kind of widespread access to information that was previously gatekept or like withheld. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I'm on this little trip in Charleston and uh, I went on a guided tour, architectural tour or whatever. And the tour guide was basically, <laughs> he was an older gentleman and he mentioned the fact that a lot of the, the homes and really eccentric looking buildings around in Charleston were, you know, handmade by artisans and that kids these days are, you know, on TikTok or whatever, and not going into these fields anymore. And I found that to be really fascinating because, right, like it is true uh, on some level that the amount of people going into artisan crafts or trades, right, um, is much, much lower than it ever has been. But the question, I guess, is what is the newer wave and what are we actually losing by not having those people going into those fields anymore? And I think just on a, <laughs> on a really anecdotal level, it's, I think, why you see the guy in the flannel with a mustache making an artisanal product on Etsy, um, right. And selling it for a lot of money and people being like, wow, this is really cool. Like, where does the excitement for that come from? <laughs> so I, I kind of wonder, right? Like what, what have we lost and what are we gaining? And I don't disagree with you at all because yeah, we wouldn't be having this conversation otherwise. So I, I wonder if there's like a happy medium there. Did I send you over any of like the cyberpunk stuff or have you been following kind of this, you know, niche movement or niche kind of like content area that's been swelling on, on, you know, certain pockets of, of Twitter. Have you seen it? No. Have you heard of the, the concept of solarpunk? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so Paul Fletcher Hill, he just kind of started compiling these notes on solarpunk kind of combining different links and resources and essays and articles and films. I'm kind of just riffing on different themes. And one of the, one of the things that he, he was talking about was the potential shift in knowledge work or the decline of the importance of knowledge work as a result of some of the AI innovations we're seeing, particularly stuff around like OpenAI's Codex. And if we play this out, we think that, oh, our, like our knowledge work, you know, creative jobs are not at risk, but that may just, because like self-preservation bias and in reality we may find ourselves in a world where like the real skills the the most valuable things end up being i don't know like craftsmanship and like construction and like operations in the physical world where you're able to you know 3d print homes like you can fix them or you can adjust them you can kind of develop them with with your friends with your family with your community and then there's kind of profound resurgence of appreciation for the physical that Obviously, I mean, as you mentioned, the hipster Etsy artwork, there's clearly some need there. And I think we've just perhaps strayed away from it a little bit. But as they say, like, what is what is old is eventually new again. And so we may find ourselves back to that point where everyone's like, oh, yeah, this digital stuff is less fulfilling, not as important as we thought it was, because a lot of the stuff we were worried about has been kind of handed off. And we should build in the physical world again, not just like, cities and machines and devices and stuff, but also communities and homes and things that are a bit more uh, natural, but also integrated with, with technology. 
so it's a cool it's a cool thing to poke around on that's a pretty spot on segue <laughs> into why deep tech and hard tech kind of problems um, are becoming more and more interesting put in the spotlight and I, I know that the the cultural shift uh, moving away from being an engineer at a social media company or an ad company that has a search engine attached to it <laughs> has been growing, right? It's like, a, it's a really interesting shift, I think. And the number of problems that we're going to see people attacking and getting into uh, is another thing that I'm really excited about. And I think that we'll see quite a resurgence in that. I don't know if you agree, if that's kind of a, a good segue into deep tech. But um, Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I, I think so. I think there's the gradual shift away from kind of the big tech into, arguably, I, I think maybe like deep tech is one classification, but it's more of, I think about more of like the impact projects, like what's going to actually lead to a thriving and engaging world versus how I'm continuing to optimize software. Oh, that may be one distinction. But yeah, let's 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 talk deep tech, man. What uh, what facet of this is kind of appealing to you, and maybe you can talk a little about kind of the like how the the work you're doing at Atomic fits into this landscape. I do think that there is a lot of really interesting stuff happening at the intersection of software and hardware in the physical world, and I enjoyed watching the Tesla AI Day presentations, and yeah, it's super cool, and you know. I don't know if I could argue necessarily a whole lot with Elon on the fact that like Tesla is positioned really well uh, to become a company that tackles real world AI problems. I mean, in the physical world, at least. <laughs> so I, I find that to be super interesting. And I wonder, honestly, you know, like when we talk about a lot of the policy driven stuff again and look at this. I mean, one of the first things that I think about is how, how do we actually implement these things? What's going to come first? Like on a very, you know, practical and pragmatic level, like what am I going to be, what's my life going to be like 10 or 15 years from now, even maybe five years. And I don't know if you've like tracked that yourself <laughs> for how, how potentially like you've personally been impacted by this stuff. But I, I think about that a lot. And I think about how the rest of the world has experienced this stuff as well. And it all kind of circles back on these fields where, you know, a lot of people are not going into them anymore. Are we just expecting maybe to replace that stuff with automation? Like, where do the creative aspects of it come in? I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of question marks there for me. <laughs> but I think that, you know, what we're what we're trying to work on is just one one small facet, you know, of, of all of this stuff. And we're still kind of in stealth right now because we haven't launched. But I will I will say that what Atomic is going to focus on largely is a bottleneck in how physical goods are made. And we'd like to focus a lot on, you know, some of these older trades that don't have enough people going into them anymore, or a lot of the work has been, you know, outsourced. And even, even where it has been outsourced, a lot of people aren't going into it anymore. And a lot of it is 
built around how much of this knowledge can you silo, right? And like pass on through apprenticeship, basically, because you don't go to college for a lot of this stuff. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's fascinating. On that, I mean, I guess, how do you think about job training? It's like apprenticeships moving in the future. I've been having conversations with people where it seems like we may see a resurgence there too, where people are able to go find, you know, do, I don't know, you pair the AI stuff. People can do apps, do tests, figure out like different paths for them, different things for reskilling, different areas that could be exciting based on market needs. And then they can go do preliminary training in VR or online and then get connected to kind of physical world, like apprentice-like programs and get the physical experience they need to go you know, solve these problems or do this work that that's currently being kind of overlooked. How do you think about that future? If things, you know, start going that way, I, I do think that you're going to have this trade school 2.0 <laughs> effectively of, you know, the, the intersection of newer technologies with the old and like where, where, where do humans fit into that? And how do they actually make a job out of it? right? That can like pay their bills because you don't want to just be a part-time component <laughs> of like a nearly autonomous system, basically. <laughs> so to be hundred percent honest, like who wants to do shitty manual labor in a factory? Like nobody wants to do that. <laughs> um, so I mean, you, you could probably argue that a lot of jobs that people do right now, they don't want to do. And then you have this is a complete tangent, obviously, but there's, you know, there are a lot of different attitudes about people and what kind of fulfillment they have with their own work, right? If you get a job at a fang tech company and you're just kind of like the the rest invest mindset, right? You just you're, you're there for like five to seven years, you're a millionaire just from your equity grants, right? Like, what do you have to worry about? And you're just, you know, you're just chilling. <laughs> so I mean, it's either that or you put your head down and you work really hard on, you know, engineering something new into the world. And I think that for me personally, I, I left I left Google like almost 10 years ago now. And I, I realized that pretty early on, even though I was working literally in like the early, you know, Google X moonshot factory. And yeah, I wanted to I wanted to build that for myself. And I went on a really roundabout way of doing it, <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I find myself where I am. And yeah, so I don't know. I think it's, I think it's really interesting trying to get people excited about this stuff and it could, it could usher in a completely new set of skills, right? Like what if, what if part of your training is understanding all of the most important, you know, bits and pieces of what you would get out of an apprenticeship and maybe then also how to train a new AI model or just be proficient, right. In like, in writing machine learning code or being kind of more like a data scientist oriented, but then you also have some like industrial training as well. Like those people will be hugely valuable because even, even in building the kind of company that I'm building right now, or some of the other, you know, industrial automation companies that are starting to crop up, go look at their job page right? They need, they need people that have lived and worked at those intersections. Those are kind of like the most critical people to their team. And without them, they're not going to move forward. Yeah. I, I think there's kind of a deficiency. Like one of the challenges it seems like, at least in the, the hard tech space, is like there's not a lot of people who have that overlap experience. 
or, or maybe, maybe, maybe that's not true. It's increasingly difficult to find them for sure. I think there's also a mindset that if you, you know, work kind of like the incumbent in that space, that's, you know, that we're like actively working to quote unquote replace, it's not even really replacement. I would argue it's more of uh, the next evolution of how those fields will grow. And this is a pretty weak example, right? But like once architects uh, got to move from a drafting desk and a, you know, pencil to going to CAD software, I'm sure the early days of that were awful. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. This is really interesting because maybe architecture is a poor example, but you you will have some of the best architects in the world that are still, they're all drafting by hand for sure. Um, but they're still going to, they're still going to digitize their designs. They're, you know, they're going to be way more productive because they can do more in software. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of these manual industrial different, you know, fields and manufacturing methodologies, all, all of that kind of stuff is going to be moving that way in the future. And I I like to, you know, bring that to life. And that's part of why, you know, we're, we're building atomic. I actually, I do think architecture is a, is a good example of like an industry that has kind of gone through this process of digitalization or kind of softwareification, I guess. And it seems clear from the outside. I mean, I should probably talk to someone who's, who's in it that it's so much easier to design and collaborate and discuss your projects than it was 10 or 15 years ago, especially with CAD. And it's like probably reduced, has dropped costs down significantly as well. And I think we can kind of apply that to other, other industries and other um, spaces that have not had the same sort of like innovation. It's like net, net win. I'm, I'm going to just keep hammering on this like policy thing. <laughs> but the connection back into that, right, is it's a really interesting question to wonder how globalization has really worked out for people. And not necessarily just like the average American, but pretty much anybody anywhere. Like, how has that really worked out for us? And some people, you know, would argue that the industrialization that China experienced over the past, you know, two to three decades really put them on a trajectory to be in the position that they're in right now. Right. And we just gave that to them on a platter. And that was because we, you know, we couldn't afford, right. Quote unquote, the labor basically to make all of our crap. And that's, that's a generous way of looking at it. It's really, it's interesting. Yeah, it is generous, I guess. But, you know, and a lot of the people that wanted globalization are now complaining about the the byproducts of it. And I think that automation in a lot of these fields or a high amount of automation to make the costs go down where we can actually be in control of our supply chains is not necessarily this like nationalist anti-globalist mindset, but it's just, it seems more reasonable in a lot of ways, especially just from a resource constraint perspective, right? Like we're literally living in a time right now where you have material shortages, you have labor shortages, all kinds of critical things are not really ubiquitous right now. Right. And, you know, costs are increasing because the goods are scarce and some people would call that inflation and some would, <laughs> but, um, depending on how long it remains uh, sustained at those levels. I think that kind of just speaks for itself in a lot of ways. 
And I think that there's a really pressing need to look at and examine automation in a lot of these fields to bring this stuff back. I'm curious, what is like the uh, the end of this tunnel look like if all goes well? So given kind of your lens and, and the work that you're you're doing and the perspective you have on the world, like what is an optimistic take for you know where we're at in 10 years? Like what does that world look like? I'd like it to be a less dumb world. <laughs> less dumb world that's like more proactive. And I'd really, I'd really like to see more prosperity, like globally. It doesn't, I mean, I, I'd love that, you know, to, to happen here at home, but I think that the better off everybody is, the better we'll be, you know, as a whole, like we want to be awesome. And you know, we're, we're getting there. We are definitely getting there. It's like, it's definitely a challenge for us, <laughs> but that's progress though. I, I actually want to drill in as we kind of come to a close here. Like, what some of those like the areas you would want people to be proactive in uh, earlier in the conversation we're talking like health and policy where else do you think we can get a lot of leverage if we if we shift our mindset to be proactive exactly i think on an individual level it really starts there right because if you're if you're personally not motivated to do something why are you going to do it and i think the incentive structure again is just kind of lacking in a lot of ways because we're not incentivized to really dig in and question things and to be motivated. I would say that like a majority of people are just kind of, you know, going about their daily lives for no fault of their own, not super highly motivated. Right. And like, you don't need everybody in the world to, to want to change it at that kind of level, but it sure helps. Right. (laughs) So I mean, like, that that was the really fascinating thing about the space race and the cold war. Like people were super motivated um, by seeing people landing on the moon. Like that's wild. And I think that that really propelled a lot of people to go into, you know, engineering and who knows, right? Like it's incalculable what kind of effect that had on us as a general public. And I'd love to see a more, (laughs) a more forward thinking and proactive mindset. If that was anything that I wished for, it would be that in people on an individual level, because I think that without that, it's going to be hard to push for anything that we really, you know, want to build. That's truly like fascinating and awesome in, in a really genuine way. A lot more to riff on there, but I want to kind of, I know we're, we're kind of coming up on time. Aaron, where can people find you and any, any kind of calls to action, anything you want to kind of touch on that we didn't quite cover? I can be found on Twitter. <laughs> I'm trying really hard to be a better Twitter citizen. I'd, I'd like to be a little bit more active than I am. I, I'd like to do that a lot more. I'd love for anybody that's interested in anything that was talked about here and really also just kind of the connection to, you know, deep tech problems to reach out. And I would love to have a collaborative uh, Substack or newsletter that really drilled into individual problems that people are working on, you know, secrecy, notwithstanding, obviously, like don't want anybody to give up any uh, sensitive information. But I think that it's really interesting right? To hear more about this kind of stuff and how people think about it. And I'd love to get that kind of stuff out to people. So any, any kind of call to action around people who want to share uh, what they're working on and maybe like a written form would love to, would love to hear more and would love to obviously offer that to anybody interested. Otherwise, 
if you're interested in working on the future of manufacturing, also reach out <laughs> or anybody that really wants to talk about uh, anything that we discussed and would love to have somebody bark in my ear about policy um, because I don't know anything about it, but I have a lot of thoughts. Nice. And you are, you are a physicist on Twitter, right? Yep. Yep. Cool, man. Thanks for coming on. This is a blast. Thank you for having me. Would love to obviously do it again. Super fun. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you want to support the show, please share favorite episode with a friend. If you want to get updates on the events we're hosting, new podcast episodes, and follow along as we build the new World's Fair, you can follow me on Twitter at C-A-M-W-I-E-S-E. Until next time, go build.